Today's scripture reading is in Haggai 1, 12 to 15. It can be found on page 667 in your pew Bibles. Haggai 1, 12 to 15. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. So a couple of pieces of uh, housekeeping before we proceed with the text. and the... Uh, A couple of things. Uh, first, this is Andrea, her first time presiding, and she didn't introduce herself, and many of you won't know her. Many of you may know her husband, <laughs> but we won't go any further with that. Uh, this is Andrea. Her husband's also a good fellow, but, you know, anyway. Uh, so we thank you, Andrea, for stepping forward. Now, you see, Ben, I, I could have, but I didn't, okay? <laughs> Remember, okay. The other thing is... Ah, I got so caught up in that. Oh, yeah, Summerbridge. Look, what we wanted, uh, Andrea mentioned it in passing in her prayer, but, you know, Eric was too, uh, Eric and Katie were too modest to highlight this. To me, what's especially significant about Summerbridge is that these people who volunteer, these adults who volunteer for Summerbridge, are using their vacation time. Now, when I have vacation time, I generally like like to spend it with fish, not with 40 little kids. (laughs) So I think we can really commend the effort they put forward in sharing Christ's love with children. Now for the text. I left last time, you know, after we looked at the text last time, I thought afterwards, you know, this is really kind of a, a bit of a tough text. And I think Haggai would have realized that last week's passage was a tough text for his audience as well. Because at the end... And we didn't have time to develop it last week, so I'll develop it this week. At the end, he seems to concede that that what God is asking of his audience is hard. And he spends the last few verses explaining why they were willing to receive it. And this is a legitimate question for us to reflect on is, when God's word comes to us and it's painful or it's hard, it's challenging, let's be positive. When God's word comes to us and it's challenging, do we accept the challenge or, or do we try to avoid it? And what can motivate us to accept the challenge? So I want to back up for just three or four minutes, particularly for those of you who may not have been here last time, to, to identify what the challenge that Haggai poses is and then how that impacts us. And then we look at why we should accept the challenge or what can motivate us to accept the challenge. So turn with me first to Haggai, page 667 in the Pew Bible. Uh, Haggai chapter 1, particularly while the reading was 12 to 15, and we'll concentrate there, turn first of all to Haggai chapter 1, verse 4, verses 3 and 4. 
Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet, prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Uh, just briefly. Uh, Israel had, for, because of its sin, God had permitted Israel to be taken into exile. And they were taken roughly into exile. They didn't just immigrate. An enemy came in and invaded their country, destroyed their country, killed many of their people, especially their leaders, tore down the walls of the Jerusalem, destroyed, burned the temple to the ground, and dragged all their leaders into exile. But God had told them that if while they were in exile, if they repented and came back to him, then he'd restore them to the land. And he'd bring them back to their country, and they'd be safe, and they'd prosper, they'd do well. And he'd look after them, and they'd have a relationship with God all this time. And, and they had repented in exile, and God had brought them back. But then he's addressing them, well, now that they've come back, and, and think of what it was like, many of you, for your parents. If your parents were first-generation immigrants. You know, you're coming back and, and your parents probably came as grad students and they may have not come with much money, but at least they came with, to get an education and they had some kind of footing they could establish in this country. But here these immigrants are coming back with very little money, coming to an area that had been, an uh, agricultural environment that had been devastated, no homes, impoverished, fighting for survival. And they did what the first generation always does. They, they put their heads down, they got to work, and they fought their way for survival. And they even prospered. The word of the Lord comes to them. You're living in paneled homes. They'd done well. But in the course of it, they had neglected the temple. They had neglected the place where they was offered for them to worship God, to meet with God. They had neglected the emblem of God's presence in their midst. And so God says to them, you live in fancy homes, and yet my temple's a ruin. They come with virtually nothing. They finally reach the point of prosperity. And now God is criticizing them for giving too much effort to prosperity and not enough to the temple, not enough to their relationship with him. Now there's another little piece of this. Ezra was written about the same time to the same people in the same circumstance. And Ezra tells us a little bit more. When they first came back to their land, they'd actually started work on the temple. But there were other people living in the area at that time. It was an occupied land. And their enemies first said, well, let us help you. We worship the same God. Let us help you build this temple. And Israel said, no, we don't worship the same God. And no, you can't help us. And so they, the, the people around, the surrounding peoples got angry and opposed the construction of the temple. So not only does Israel have to face this fight for survival, they also have to face the possibility that the surrounding peoples will oppose them and attack them. And so they hold off on the temple because that's too controversial now. That's too expensive. We can't afford it. Too controversial. It may inflame our opponents in the area. And so they hold off. And God says to them, Oh, they said to God, these people say, verse 2, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And God says, well, how do you mean? The time has come for you to live in paneled homes and, and yet my house remains a ruin? 
Now, for us, obviously, it's not about building a church. And we're going to have a church building project, but we're clearly, church buildings nowadays are convenience. They're not places set apart as holy places where God will meet with us solely. This is the only place God will meet with us. So temples have a different function today. But we looked at last week at how this applies in our, in our lives. It applies really to our homes, you could argue. We still have the whole issue of, of paneled homes. Now, you drive into my neighborhood if you come visit me sometime. Uh, back before many of you owned homes, we hosted people a lot. And you drive into my neighborhood, and the, and the first houses you pass on our street are the houses that were built in 1958, 59, and they haven't been renovated. So they're all ranches, one story, like a railroad car, train car, maybe about 1,100, 1,200 square feet. And you come further into our neighborhood, you get up to our house, and all the houses immediately around us have been renovated. Some of them added a second story. The previous owner added an extra room to our home. And so now the homes have moved from 1,100 square feet to probably 15 to 1,700 square feet. And then you move up further up the hill, and there's homes that were built in the 70s, in the 80s. And they're all two-story homes. You know, Garrison Colonials, Colonials. And you move up even further to the top of the neighborhood, and these homes are built around 2,000, and they're all the McMansions. And, and, and it just illustrates that in the 50s, Americans, I grew up in one of these little homes. Americans could live in a little home. But as our economy has developed, our taste in homes has increased, in the size of a home and in the appointment of the home. And our homes are getting fancier. And, and maybe God is saying to us, is it, is it time for us to be living in paneled houses while the work of God remains stagnant or slow? Or think about our families. I came across this, this, a statistic uh, just like the last week or two. Affluent homes, let's face it, most of us come from affluent homes. Affluent families spend seven times as much on enrichment activities for their children as blue-collar families do. Enrichment activities, you know how it is, right? Piano lessons, violin lessons, Chinese class, uh, whatever, chess clubs, sports. Whatever your family has stuck you into against your protest. Oh, oh, oh yeah, self-defense, you know, martial arts, any, all sorts of things. Now, it's not just that we're spending money on it, but, you know, for the first time in our lives, my wife and I are now soccer parents, soccer mom, soccer dad. You know, it's not just the money you're spending, but it's the busyness of your life. And how do you raise two or three kids and do all that? You know, is it time for your families to be so prosperous and active while the work of God suffers? Or careers. This is hard to measure, so maybe it's not entirely accurate, but there is some claim that Americans now work more per week, per day, per week, than, well, of course, we work more than the English and French, and certainly more than the Germans and Norwegians. But there's argument now that we even work more than the Japanese. Less vacation, longer days, retire later. So maybe what God's saying to us is, not so much the, the, well, the paneled homes fits, or the busy family life fits, or the devotion to our career fits. And while we're devoting to these things, then you've got the work of God. And, and how much money do we have left over? 
for the work of God. Not just here in this church, but around the world. How much time do we have left over? How much energy do we have left over for the work of God? If we're also furthering our careers, devoted to our families, and building bigger homes. Now, the first thing I want to show you from this passage is that God's modest. God's, hang on, God doesn't demand to be first in their lives. It's really extraordinary. I would have thought he demanded to be first. What does he say in Haggai chapter 1? Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled homes while this house remains a ruin? He wasn't saying that they should not have homes at all. And he's not even saying they shouldn't have fancy homes. He seems tolerant enough of that. It was the contrast between the, the fancy home and the temple as a ruin. So God seems to be willing to, be, to share first place in our lives. At least in Haggai, he doesn't seem to be saying, I want to be first in your life. He seems to be willing to share first place in our lives. And so that's why this sermon title, is there a space in the center of our lives for God? Not, is God the center of our lives? But at least is there space in there for God? And that's what he's, Haggai, that's what God is asking the people through Haggai. That's what Haggai is asking the people. Not, is God first place? Can, is the temple paneled while you live in ruins? He's not asking for that. He's just saying, well, look, is there some kind of equity here that how you treat God is, uh, is more or less comparable to how you treat yourself? Paneled home, paneled temple. Simple home, simple temple. You know, is there some kind of parity? Is there room in the center of your life to fit God in? Or is your money diverted to too many other causes? Is your time and your energy diverted to too many other things? That God, God is, it also ran in our lives. And it doesn't seem, at least from Haggai, that God demands to be the focus. It seems only that he doesn't want to be an also ran. He doesn't want to be on the peripheries. But even that was hard for them. First generation immigrants. Threats around them. Financial insecurity in front of them. And so they devoted themselves to their careers and to their families and, and to their homes. And the word of God comes to them. And it's a challenge for them as it is for us. It's, it's painful for them as it would be for us. And so at the very end of the verse, we have their response. And I want to highlight two things from their response. First of all, let's look at how warm, how really touching their response is. And then we look at how they were able to respond that way. What motivated them to respond that way? So take a look at verses 12 and 15, the 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. They, obey, they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. What, what more could God take delight in? God speaks to his people, and he's not scold, well, mildly scolding them. He's not condemning them. It's not a word of condemnation or rejection. It's just a word of, look, you're failing here. You need to pick up. You need to do better. And his people responded. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Now, why? Notice, first of all, verses 12, the first half of verse 12. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. 
They obeyed, first of all, because this is the voice of the Lord, the omnipotent creator of all that is, sovereign over all history. This was the God whose power was sufficient to drag them into exile and whose mercy was sufficient to pull them back out of exile. This is the great Lord, the true one God of all the universe. But more than the, him being the great Lord over all, he's the Lord, their God. This is the God who had done these things for them. And so they respond in love to the Lord, their God. And beyond that, the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord, their God, had sent him. They listened to Haggai because it was God who was speaking through them. We live in pretty much a comparable situation. Maybe ours is a little more intense than theirs. Because as the book of Hebrews looks back on the prophets, including looks back on Haggai, what does he say about Jesus? You know, the Lord spoke through Haggai. But well, what about Jesus? What we hear in Hebrews chapter 1 is that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. If they respond to God when he calls them to this, how much more we respond to Jesus because God is not speaking to us through a prophet. God's speaking to us through his son. A second reason why they responded to God. Verse 12, the second half. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord God, their God had sent him. And the people feared before the Lord. They obeyed God because they realized he was this Lord that dragged them into exile and could drag them back. How, what is that, how does that apply to us? You see, here's a major shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because while there's fear of God in the New Testament, it's not the primary factor that comes out. Well, primarily what we hear about God in the New Testament is this. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. They listened to God because he was Lord and their Lord. But they listened to him also out of a healthy fear and respect for him. We listen to Jesus because God speaks to us through him more clearly than he ever spoke through the prophets. But we listen to Jesus because of his great love demonstrated for us. We are never acting to respond. We are, sorry, we are never acting to earn God's love. We are only ever acting in response to Jesus' love. And there's a third reason why the people responded to God. Haggai chapter 1 verse 13. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And what did he say to the people? What was the Lord's message? I am with you always. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, this is not just that God's saying, well, I'll be present there. What God is saying is, I will be with you, not only just living with you, but helping you. 
It's not like we have to do this in our own power, in our own strength. You know, it's not like it's our own achievement. It's that God is standing alongside of us and with us. And you know, when Jesus left his disciples and gave this small ragtime, ragtag band of 11 men a commission to evangelize the world, he went back to Haggai and other places in the Old Testament and he picked up this same promise. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you always. The same promise from Haggai. The same promise that could sustain them in the midst of their struggle for survival. The same promise that could sustain them as they face their enemies, is the same promise God offers us, that Jesus offers us. So when he calls us to modify the full pursuit of the welfare of our homes, the welfare of our families, the welfare of our career, when he calls us to put limits around this, he's also saying to us, look, I'm with you. I'll help you through this. I'll help you with the challenges. I'll look after you as you do this. And there's a, a fourth reason. Not only because he's God, not only because they feared or we love him, not only because God would be present with him, but with them, but verse, uh, verse 14 also. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the remnant of all people. In Scripture, the Spirit is the thing that motivates us. The Spirit is the, the thing that energizes us. The Spirit is the, the thing that gives us the ability to function. Once our spirit leaves, we die. And so what he's saying here in Haggai is, is God didn't just tell them from the outside, here's the law, you've got to do it. God touched them from the inside, transformed them to enable them, to give them the power to do it, the desire to do it. And this is what the New Testament, above all else, says that Jesus has done for us. It's not only dying for our sin, but to give us his spirit within us. To give us the heart to do these things we should do. To give us the desire to do these things. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That we might understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. The spirit comes into our lives as we come to Christ. And he transforms us to give us a heart. We have these same four motivators. The Lord, our God, calls us. We don't so much fear the Lord as we love him, but it's not so much that we stand in fear of his judgment, but we stand in, as recipients of his, uh, his affection and compassion. We have the promise of the presence of God. We have this internal transformation that makes us willing to embrace it. These four motivators are really important. God doesn't come to criticize. God comes to call us to something higher. And a little bit of that, a little bit of it, maybe it impinges on our, you know, enjoyment a little bit. Maybe we can't do quite as many things for our family as we would do otherwise. Maybe we can't have quite as fancy a house as we would do otherwise. Maybe we can't pursue our career quite to the extent that we would do otherwise. But as we do this, we bring honor and pleasure to the Lord our God. 
as we do this, we express our love to him for his love for us. As we do this, he stands alongside of us, guiding us and helping us. We can do this because he stirred up our spirits within us. These things, I would say these four motivators are even more important for us than they were for Haggai's generation. And here's why. I was, when, my, the first draft of this, I had assumed that we were in the same position as Haggai's generation. That God was inviting us and saying, look, just make room for me in the center of your lives. Don't keep me on the peripheries. Make room for me in the center. And if that's all God's saying to us, these, still, these four motivators are still very important to us. It's not a word of condemnation. It's not a word of judgment. It's a word of exhortation. It's a word of encouragement. You know, I am the Lord your God. You don't need to fear me so much as I've loved you and now you love me. I'm present with you. I'm stirring up your spirit to do this. If all God is saying to us is, it's just like in Haggai's time, I'm willing to be part of the center of your life. I don't have to be the sole center. I, can be, I just won't be the peripheries, but I'll be part of the center. If that's all God's saying to us, these four motivators are still very important. And that's how I thought this whole thing was going to go. But then somewhere in the course of things, I remembered what, what Jesus said, which is a lot harder, a lot more challenging. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus said to another man, follow me. But he replied, first, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, well, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You see what Jesus has just done? It had to be scandalous in his day. Jesus could have gone back to Haggai and said to his listeners, well, this is God what's, wants from you what he's always wanted. He just wants to be part of the center of your life. But Jesus did two things. He said, it's not about God anymore. He said, it's about me, about Jesus. Jesus put himself in the place of God. You know, there are some people that say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God directly. Well, he did a few times, but it's not so obvious. He wasn't so transparent about it. But look at this. How can he do this? God wanted to be part of the center of your life. And Jesus says, now we're not talking about God. Now we're talking about me. I'm going to be part of the center of your life. And then the other thing Jesus does is he ratchets it up a notch. Jesus doesn't say, I want to be part of the center of your life. Jesus says, I will be the center of your life. Think about careers. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. What's the man offering to do? I will give up my career in order to follow you. I will give up my job in order to follow you. Was that enough? Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
Jesus doesn't say, you, if you follow me, you can't build a paneled home. Jesus says, if you follow me, you may have no home. And think about family. Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Another man says, I'll follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. I don't have to wait for them to die. I just want to say goodbye. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus obviously does not call all of us to do all of these things. He does call some of us to do some of these things. And he does call all of us to make him the center of our lives, however it works out in practice. Not just share the center, but be the center. Think about our careers. You know, the goal as, our as a congregation, our goal for the next year is to figure out how can we leverage our careers and what our careers provide us to further the gospel, the work of God in the world. How can we leverage our careers? For some of us, that don't mean giving up our career for vocational Christian ministry, switching careers, and from whatever we've been doing to being full-time vocational Christian missionaries or pastors. Some of us, it'll just mean leveraging that career, the opportunities it provides, the, the, the focus. For some of us, it just means we'll continue in the same career, but now our focus will no longer be the career. The center of our lives will not be our career. The center of our career will not be our career. The center of our career will be Jesus. Uh, for those of who are in college and, and have a choice available to you, you know, people who have already chosen a career to start over again is a wrenching experience. But maybe if you're in college now and thinking about your career, the, the, the challenge of the congregational focus is this. Will you make these decisions bearing in mind the opportunity it provides for you to serve God? What good can you do for God in this career becomes the primary question. And then what are you good at becomes the secondary question. And how much it pays becomes a tertiary or whatever the Latin word is or fourth level question after that. It affects our, it has impact on our career. Whatever direction it ends up taking you, whether you end up going to vocational Christian ministry, whether you end up staying in your vocation and just leveraging it to serve God, whether you choose a vocation for God, whichever, Jesus seems no longer satisfied with what God expected in Haggai. Jesus doesn't want to be part of our careers. Apparently, Jesus wants to be the center of our careers. And think about homes. This man had been willing to give up his home to follow Jesus, or had to be willing to give up his home to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't call us all to give up our homes. Let's face it, if you go into foreign missions and spend your career in foreign missions still today, unless there's a few denominations you can go to, go with, into foreign missions and still own a home. But most of us that spent a serious amount of time in missions only were able to buy homes by leaving missions in order to come back to the U.S., and now that that's not why we leave missions, but the reality is if you go into missions, you probably won't own your own home. And it, then it becomes, retirement becomes a real ambiguity. God doesn't call us. Jesus doesn't demand that we all not own homes. We can own homes. But Jesus wants to be the center of our home. 
Think about it. You know, when you renovate a house, when you buy furniture for a house, is this home still a home I can use to, to show hospitality? Or am I going to be so worried about my furniture I don't want sticky little kids coming over? Or how about this? You know, we're starting a building project. It's been approved for 151 to be renovated, the first house you come to on the, in the driveway. And then later on, this is going to be like a five or six year building project in this on campus. So you know t space is going to get a lot tighter. And you know a lot of home, a lot of fellowships groups are going to be required to go back to homes. A lot of more activities will have to occur at home rather than here at the church. Are we willing to offer our homes? Jesus doesn't want to just be this church to be fancy. He doesn't want to be the center of this building. He wants to be the center of our homes and how we use our homes. And how about our family? Jesus told those who wanted to follow him, well, you have to give up. Mother, father, sister, and brother, children. Jesus doesn't call us all to neglect our children. He doesn't call any of us to neglect our children. Jesus doesn't call all of our children to go overseas and learn a new language, learn a new culture, go to foreign schools where we just don't fit in. Jesus doesn't call all of our children to do that. He does call some of our children to do that. He doesn't call all of our children to do that. But Jesus does insist. He, he doesn't want to just be children and Jesus. Jesus is Jesus and children. And it impacts the kinds of things we do with our families. If Jesus is demanding, no. If Jesus is inviting us to a higher level of commitment than what God asked of Haggai, how can Jesus expect more of us than God expected of Haggai's generation? Jesus can do it, first of all, because he did all these things for us. Jesus isn't calling us to do anything for him that he hasn't already done for us. He gave up career. He gave up house. He gave up family. He gave up life. So Jesus can call us to something more because he's demonstrated that sort of commitment to us. But more than that, Jesus can call us to all these things because he's given us even more than God had given Haggai's generation. God spoke to them through Haggai. God speaks to us through his son. God called them to fear us, fear him. God demonstrates his love for us. God promised his presence with them and Jesus promises his presence with us. God touched their spirits. Jesus has transformed us. When we hear what Jesus calls us to, there are two responses we should have. Not how intimidating this is, how absolute this is, how demanding this is. Our two responses should be this. First of all, it's incredible that Jesus already did this for us as we sang in our worship songs. That Jesus would do this for us is astounding and breathtaking. And the other feature of it is, as demanding as these things is that God's asking of us, as demanding of these, as these things are that Jesus is asking from us, not only has he done it for us, but he's with us, transforming us, empowering us, so that we can do it. 
And that's really the message of his commissioning to us. It's not, you must do it. The real message he's given to us is, you can do this. Jesus asks more of us than God asked of Haggai's generation because he knows that by his transformation and grace in our lives, we can do more. Let's pray together. Jesus, we stand here in sacred space that you would ask more of your followers than your father asked of his. That you would do so much more for your followers than ever God did for the Old Testament believers. We stand here in sacred space that what you call us to do you're actively at work in our lives, bringing to pass. We pray, Father, that our hearts might be as open as Haggai's generation, that our lives might be as effective. We ask for your blessing and your transformation to be at work. In Jesus' name, amen.